Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Today's lesson is part of a message that was preached at the Midwinter Retreat at Berean Bible Church in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. All of the conference messages had to do with the biblical teachings about the body of Christ. If you would like to hear other messages from the conference, including other speakers, you can visit the Berean Bible Church website at www.bereanbiblechurch.com. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. You, you see here in this passage, this is uh, you know, part of the, the practical instruction in the book of Ephesians. Most part, the first half of the book of Ephesians is doctrinal in nature, and the last half is practical. And and yet you see how the practice that Paul is describing there is so so intricately linked with doctrinal subjects. So here he he's uh, talking. It's really beginning a section of the book of Ephesians that's talking about uh, various ways that believers in, you know, in different relationships are to submit themselves. Here in our, our text, he talks about wives and husbands and how wives are, are to uh, submit to their husbands and husbands are to love their wives. In chapter 6, it goes on to talk about children and parents and, and uh, servants and masters. But um, the... the uh, message that we're going to take from this text is is not really about husbands and wives where all the all the messages this weekend are talking about the body of Christ and you see how in teaching about the marriage relationship uh, Paul Paul roots that that uh, teaching regarding the marriage relationship in the relationship between Christ and the church which is his body and uh, it's, and it is a relationship that he's describing there. Uh, have you ever noticed how, how often it seems like when we talk about 
the Lord Jesus Christ, our, our Lord and Savior, how so often we talk about Christ much in the same way we might talk about other historical characters. Um, you know, we, we talk about Christ and even think about Christ often as someone who, you know, lived, lived long ago. Um, we think of, of Christ as someone who is not here present. And yet that's not the way the scripture describes Christ. I mean, certainly Christ is someone who lived and, and uh, had a life here on this earth. Uh, someone who died, but unlike those historical characters, he rose from the dead. And, and Christ is present. I mean, part of the whole, the whole purpose of learning about the body of Christ is to understand that the person of Christ is present in the church. And, and we really, that's one of those areas where we have to renew our minds and, and train ourselves, again, not to just think of Christ as, as some historical figure, but to understand that, that Christ is a Lord and Savior who, who we have a relationship and who loves us as it describes the relationship there. You see it, it uh, likens the, in the marriage relationship, it likens the role of husband to that of Christ and how Christ in verse 23 is the head of the church and he's the savior of the body. Um, in in uh, verse 25, as he talks about husbands loving their wives, even as Christ loved the church and says he gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Uh, you see, Christ isn't just a historical figure. You know, there certainly there's a lot you can learn from history and learn about various historical figures. There's, you know, one one such uh, individual that has always intrigued me and that I've, I've really invested a lot of time and, and effort in learning about um, was a, a, the Confederate General Thomas Jackson, often called Stonewall Jackson. And and you see, I can tell you a lot about Stonewall Jackson. Um, I can tell you, I've, I've seen his house there in, in Lexington, Virginia, where he lived when he was an instructor at the Virginia Military Institute, and he taught artillery. And, uh, and I can tell you about how he wasn't considered to be a very good instructor in artillery and how he would, he would, he would learn, he would memorize his lessons word for word, and he would come into the classroom and recite the lesson. And if a, a student had a question about something that he had gone through, he would he wouldn't answer the question. He would just, you know, kind of kind of rewind his memory back to that point in the lesson and start reciting word for word from that point. Um, he, you know, Thomas, Thomas Jackson was someone who, like like many of the Confederate generals, uh, really abhorred the institution of slavery. And yet. He saw a duty to defend his state against a, a, an invading army. And Thomas Jackson was someone who was a, a Christian man. Uh, his social status in Lexington suffered by the fact that he taught a Sunday school for black children, which was not a, a socially acceptable thing for a, a southern gentleman. Um, he was, he was a man 
you know, unlike many of the, the fathers of his day, uh, people who visited his home would often see him playing on the floor with his children, something often people didn't do. And uh, in, a, in a big house like his, it was common to entertain guests. And Jackson, I, we saw the, the table there where he would lead Bible study. And it was understood that if you stayed at the Jackson home as a guest, that if you didn't get up and come to Bible study in the morning, you might as well not show up for breakfast, because that was a condition. If you wanted to get breakfast, you came to Bible study. Um, Thomas Jackson was someone who, during the war, he, he wrote these very tender letters to his wife, Mariana, who he always referred to as Esposita. And he would write, he would write these very tender letters to her, and he always mailed them on Monday, because when he would that letter, a rider would have to take it from, from wherever he was stationed, wherever they were camped, and it might take several days to get somewhere where he could get to his wife, and he had so much respect for the day of Sunday that he, if at all possible, if he could avoid having to, to do something which would cause somebody to have to ride on Sunday, he would do that. So by sending the letter on Monday, most likely it would get there to his wife before Sunday. And, and you know, there may be a rider delivering mail that day, but it wasn't going to be his mail. Um, and, and Thomas Jackson was someone who, in, in battle, he was known to be fearless in battle. He achieved that name Stonewall, because even when there was a, you know, a, a hail of musket balls from the enemy, he would ride there on his horse, often after the battle, finding holes in his clothing from, from you know, musket balls that had come his way. And his attitude toward that was, that his belief in the sovereignty of God was such that he felt he was just as safe on the back of that horse with musket balls all around him as he was laying in his bed at home. And, and that kind of bravery spurred his men to bravery. They could hold their ground against the enemy as they looked at him. You know, they're, they're cowered down behind this wall and he's up there on his horse. And uh, his, those, those men, uh, their unit took the name of Stonewall, and he as an individual was known as the Stonewall. And, uh, Thomas Jackson, you know, I could, could tell you about many of his victories in battle. Uh, came to a, a tragic end when he was accidentally shot by his own men. He had gone out. Uh, to to inspect the front lines again, something generals didn't often do. But he went out at night to inspect some of the enemy positions with his own eyes instead of just reports from his men. And he was, as he was coming back through the through the picket line, through the the guard line there, there was some confusion, and either he didn't give the right password or something happened, and one of his own men shot him. And he survived for, for some time after that, but eventually died. And General Robert E. Lee, after that, said, how can, I, how can I win this war without my right arm? And I can tell you all of those things about General Jackson, but the reality is I don't even know General Jackson. He certainly doesn't know me. I don't have a, a relationship with him. I can't say I, I love him. Certainly we would be a part of that same unity we talked about earlier as members of the body of Christ. 
But, but there's no relationship there. There are many things to honor and, and respect in that man, but there's no relationship there. And yet, how often do we talk about Christ in that same way? We can tell all kinds of facts about Christ and, and you know, what he's done and, and what he's accomplished. Uh, and yet, oftentimes, there seems to be kind of a disconnect between that and a, and a real relationship. Now, that's not what is described in a passage like this. You see the, the relationship that's described. As it says in, in uh, verse 23, that just as the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, he's the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, it says, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. And here, as, as Paul is describing, he's really describing the marriage relationship. He's instructing how wives are to relate to their husbands and husbands are to relate to their wives. But you see how he, he can't, he, as he describes that, he can't avoid going back to Christ and talking about Christ and, and, what, and what Christ has done. And you see that relationship that he describes there. Um, now, if you were to ask me about my wife, my, my response would be very different than, you know, that, that long list of facts that I might give you about, about General Jackson. In fact, if you were to ask me about my wife and I were to start to talk, to, talk about her in that way, and, I, and if I were to say, you know, Brooke, Brooke Church was born March 22, 1982 in Dubuque, Iowa, and, you know, and, and talk about, you'd wonder what kind of a, <laughs> kind of a relationship is that? Right. Uh, probably most likely if you were to ask me about my wife, I, I probably wouldn't be very long winded. I, I'd probably just say something like, yeah, that's, that's my wife. But what I would mean by that when I would say that is that this is the, the woman that I've set my affection on. This is the woman that I've chosen to be my wife and she's chosen me to be her husband. And this is the woman who knows me better than anybody else and yet loves me. And I love her. You see? And there's a relationship there. It's not, just, it's not just knowing about someone, but it's a relationship. And that's the, the relationship between the body of Christ and Christ himself. And so, so as it describes Christ here, and, and again, oftentimes in our thinking, you know, we think about Christ, we think about the finished work of Christ, and, and, and we love the Lord um, in the sense that we, you know, we, we appreciate what he's done for us. But as far as a, a day-to-day living in that relationship and experiencing that relationship with him, again, there can be that disconnect in our, in our thought and, and uh, in our minds. Here as it describes that relationship, it's not, it's not just the sort of thing where, uh, you know, Christ, Christ died for us and... Then, you know, he ascended and we, you know, we're just kind of here on our own until he returns. That's not what it describes. You see, you see how it says there, it says first that that Christ, he loved the church in verse 25 and he gave himself for it. He gave the greatest thing that he could give for the church. He gave himself. 
He gave Himself for it, that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. To sanctify something is to set it apart. And Christ took the church and He set it apart and He said, this, this thing is going to be special to Me. This church, this, this body is going to be special to Me, different from all others. He sets apart that church and He cleanses the church with the washing of water by the Word. The Word of God has a, a cleansing effect with the church. Certainly the Gospel itself does. Certainly the Gospel, uh, and through faith in the Gospel, we are we're justified, we're declared righteous before God. Our, our sin is, has all been dealt with in the cross. Uh, that Word of God as it comes into our lives and, and begins to, to uh, take root and to affect us, it cleanses, it changes our behavior, it, it uh, causes us not to do some of the things that we used to do, and it causes us to start to do some of the things that we ought to do. See? And, and there's a cleansing that takes place there. Verse 27 says that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You know, there's a difference between the way Christ sees the church and the way we see the church. If you think about, you think about the members of the body of Christ that you know, there's a, little, there's a little rhyme that says, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that would be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, that's another story. And, you know, you think about, you think about the saints you know that you dwell below with, and you can probably, if you know them very well, you probably see some spots and some blemishes and some wrinkles and, and those kinds of things. But here it says that, that Christ washed that, that church by the, uh, by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And you know, what that is, that's, a, that's, a, that's really an act of, of the will uh, of God to view the church in that way. Now, Paul's presenting that here really is the way that husbands ought to view their wives, uh, to make that same kind of a, a conscious choice by a, a husband to view his wife in that way. Uh, when 1 Corinthians 13 describes godly love, um, godly love isn't concerned with all of the faults and all of the, the, the blemishes, all those, all those failings. And God, understand that when God looks at the church, he's not delusional, right? He's not delusional about the church. Certainly, certainly members of that body of Christ can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Um, he's not delusional, but what God does is on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, he says, I'm going to choose to view that church in a certain way. I'm going to choose to view it as not having any spot or any wrinkle or any such thing. Now, the practical application of that here is that if God, who is more just and holy than, than we could ever hope to be, if he can do that, then a man can do that toward his wife as well, right? You're not as just as God is. God, God's more concerned with sin than you are, and yet God can look at us that way than a man can look at his wife that way. 
But you see that that he would view the church in that way. Verse 28 says, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. See, the, the, the work of Christ, certainly the work of Christ in salvation, the work of Christ in justification was completed at the cross. But God is constantly nourishing and cherishing the church. Uh, it's not a it's not a kind of an, an absentee relationship where um you know, we, we love God and He loves us, but, but there's no expression of that. You see, He nourishes. That's, those words are in the present tense. He nourishes and cherishes the church just like a man does his own body. We take care of our bodies. We do all, all kinds of things to take care of the needs of our bodies. And God is constantly doing that through the church. Now, He does that in different ways for the church, the body of Christ, than He did for Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, and yet there's that constant activity of God. God is not inactive today with regard to the church, the body of Christ. He's very active. He's very active. And the primary way that He's active is He's active through His Word, working in the lives of believers to, to do these things that this passage describes. Uh, and he's nourishing and cherishing the church. And verse 30 says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now, uh, if you look at verse 32, it says that this is a great mystery. Now, just this idea of, uh, you know, here it, it again is likening it to that marriage relationship. The, the quote in verse 31, when it says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. That's nothing new. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 2, when, when Eve is brought to Adam and the two of them are married before God and they become man and wife. And Adam recognizing that that union was going to, to result in children and that there would be then, then uh, you know, family and, and future marriages. Adam says those words. Um, in, a, in a sense, these are Adam's marriage vows there as he's, as he's uh, married to Eve and he accepts her as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And he says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother shall be joined unto his wife. They too shall be one flesh. And so so that idea of, uh, for instance, marriage being a one flesh relationship, that's not a mystery. Mystery in the Bible, something that's previously kept secret, but now revealed. Previously kept secret, but now revealed. And. Here he calls, he talks about this body truth and this one flesh truth as being a mystery in verse 32. And not just a mystery, but a great mystery. Well, what is it that's a, that's a mystery? Uh, it, it's not that, you know, man and wife become one flesh. We see that in Genesis chapter 2. It, it's really not even the, the idea that God would have a relationship with man that is likened to that marriage relationship. You know, God often describes the relationship with Israel as a marriage relationship. 
Um, some of the same kind of, of wording that's used here where he talks about the church and he talks about, uh, you know, sanctifying and cleansing the church. And, and some of that very similar wording is used for Israel in the Old Testament in various passages. Um, so, so it's not just that idea, but really it, it has to do with the Gentiles here again back in chapter 3. Uh, it talked about how the Gentiles would be fellow heirs. And, and, and here this body of Christ. See, Israel previously had a relationship likened to the marriage relationship. Uh, but, but here the body of Christ, where there's Jew and Gentile, where there's no difference between them, are joined to Christ as, as one flesh. This is something you don't find outside of Paul's epistles. You know, you find you find Israel having having some kind of a relationship and and you see that relationship because of because of Israel's rebellion, disobedience toward God eventually results in divorce. It results in God giving a bill of divorcement to Israel and, and also to Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of the tribes of Israel. He, he divorces them. He gives a bill of divorcement. But. Here, the, the body of Christ, um, this is a, a, a mystery relationship, a mystery uh, husband-wife relationship between Christ and the church. And it's very different than, than Israel's relationship because even their marriage relationship back there in the Old Testament was, was based on the law. It was based on their keeping of the law. And when they failed to do that, God gives them that bill of divorcement. Uh, you know that under the law, a man could divorce his wife. All the, all the Old Testament says is that if he finds uncleanness in her, he gives her a bill of divorcement. He could, he could divorce his wife for, you know, he didn't have to have, have some, some big reason. A uh, man could divorce his wife. He gave her that bill of divorcement and she was free to, to go and marry another man. The Lord, finding uncleanness in Israel, gave them a bill of divorcement. They're, they're, and he, he likens their spiritual, their idolatry to spiritual fornication. Um, by the way, go over to Romans. Go back to uh, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And, and so God gives them that bill of divorcement. You know, when you get into Paul's epistles, though... What God tells to, to the believer today about divorce is basically, you know, you read what, what uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, about, about divorce and, and remarriage. And basically Paul gives no valid grounds for a believer to get divorced. Uh, he does say if there's an unbeliever that, that wants to leave, you know, let them, let them depart. Okay, and he gives some instructions about remarriage and things there. Um, when you understand that the marriage relationship is a picture in, in Paul's epistles, it's a picture between God and the body of Christ, or, or Christ and the body of Christ. In the Old Testament, marriage was a picture between God and Israel. Uh, in the Old Testament, where God allowed divorce uh, under the law, he, he divorces Israel. In Paul's epistles, there's no grounds for a believer to, to seek divorce, and there is no way that God's going to divorce the body of Christ. Okay, there's, there's parallels there between those.
Um, Romans chapter 7, verse 1 says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.